0: You're listening to episode 261 of the Ruby on Rails podcast, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. This week I'm traveling, so Nick Schwaderer stepped in for me. Enjoy the podcast and catch you next week.
1: Hi, I'm Nick Schwaderer. I am guest hosting this week for the Ruby on Rails podcast, sitting in for Brittany Martin, the host of the podcast. This week I'm joined by Jose Albernios, the technical lead a technical lead at Shopify.
0: Jose, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm very happy to be here today.
1: very pleased to have you too. So with the Ruby on Rails podcast, there's a running tradition. We love to ask guests first out of the gate about your programmer or Ruby uh, origin story. So how'd you get into this world of of programming? And, And I'd love to hear about that.
0: All right. Well, uh, uh, I don't know if this is good or bad, but Ruby wasn't actually my first programming language. My first programming language, well, depending on who you're talking to, uh, was just HTML and later on, uh, PHP. Uh, I remember when I was very young, I always just wanted to have my own website. Like as soon as I knew the internet was a thing, I I thought to myself, I want to be there. And, uh, I set myself to the goal to have my own website, but I, I didn't really have internet at home so yeah. i had to spend a lot of time in server cafes you know learning about stuff and uh eventually i ran across this uh so i was about I was in fourth, fifth grade, I think. Like the clays the, the the education system in my country is not; it doesn't map one to one to the U.S. But the class where you're about eleven to twelve years old, and um, I saw this posting from a university that said something along the lines of, "Make the website for your class." So uh, that was exactly what I wanted. Uh, this local university would give you essentially free hosting as long as you're making a website for your class. Wow. Yeah, it was it was really impressive, especially for for the time I guess, yeah. and um. I, at the beginning, there was nothing crazy going on. It was just HTML websites, you know, uh, tables. I don't think I had CSS or anything like that. Right. But uh, something that was very interesting to me was that they would give me SSH access into this machine where I would actually go and put the files. And right. they did a terrible job at securing the system. So I could go directories higher and see the home folders of other users of the same system. And there were hundreds of them. And well, as a kid, I was. I just started exploring like crazy. And uh, something that that became very obvious to me was that there were websites that had PHP files. I didn't know what PHP was at the time, but I started digging into it, and uh, it was just really impressive to me how you can eventually. I connected the dots and realized that you could pass parameters in the question mark part of the URL, and then they would highlight in the HTML. Wow. And that was really the beginning of it to me, that uh, I already knew some JavaScript and I knew the potential that it had, but I was always constrained to whatever the client allows you to do. And from the moment I realized, oh shit, I can actually make it <laughs> dynamic, is when it really clicked in. And of course, discovering through these websites, I found, sorry, these home folders, I found hundreds of examples of things I could do with PHP. So uh, that's sort of effectively how I taught myself how to how to program, I guess.
1: That's awesome. So kind of like how if I want to see something done in Ruby, I might go on GitHub and peek in somebody else's. But you're actually going into these root folders, SSHing in. Is and is that how the uh, university offered the deployment? Was Was it you'd take your HTML files, SSH and put them in where they were supposed to go, and then they'd be hosted? That's
0: exactly what it was. Yeah, they. It was very weird. They just had a huge folder full of. Subfolders, and each fold, each subfolder was your domain. And by the moment you SSH in, you're straight into your sort of your home. But there's nothing forbidding you for going higher and seeing all the other domains. Uh, which I guess it was set up by university students. Maybe they didn't know better, but uh, <laughs> it was it was great to me. It, it was the one thing that allowed me to learn that dynamic websites are a thing.
1: That's awesome. So how did? Um... You kind of go from there because i mean so you say you know maybe ruby wasn't where you started but you know i think it's really interesting when folks start not by wanting to learn a language but wanting to make a thing or do a thing or you know to build right. something but obviously you found your way to ruby and rails uh, you know uh, in some way how did that kind of come about
0: so i really like the point that you touched that i guess in in hindsight for me it's always been about the goal that I want to reach, not necessarily the how. Like, I mean, it's always fun, say, if you want to learn Redis, do something with Redis. But the, the what's the end result is what really sort of matters more to me. Um, uh, fast forward a few years later, uh, I'm finishing high school and I decided that I, I just wanted to give it a shot to, you know, just work as a programmer by myself without really going to university. So I moved into the capital of my country, uh, Chile, by the way, and um, I, I just looked for jobs. I, I got to know a lot of people, learn about a lot of technologies. And I, I remember that moment very clearly when I said to myself that my goal, like my New Year's resolution for 2012 was to learn new technologies. And somebody around the same date showed me Ruby and Rails and I fell in love with it right away. So. Wow. Uh, Long story short, I ended up meeting a German who's in the country uh, desperate to create a company. And he's also desperate to find a developer that would join him in, in, in his adventure. And um, I I said to him, okay, you know what? I want to work with you. I'm willing to do sort of, you know, the the crazy German things you want to do, but I want to do this with Rails. I That's yeah. the one thing I want to learn this year. And I know that if I'm not doing something with it, I'm never really going to learn it. So he had enough patience. And <clears throat> at the time it was really nice because he he paid me for a subscription to, ah, oh, what's the name of this? Uh, Railscasts. Uh, yeah, uh, m- many developers learn through Railscasts. Yeah. yeah, Ryan Bates, such an excellent source of oh. knowledge. I love the video tutorial approach, and it was always goal-driven. He wouldn't teach you how to well. Sometimes he would teach you how to use Elasticsearch, but never for the point of Elasticsearch too. But in order right. for you to get search functionality in your website, which is what made sense to me. We had to do a new feature on the website. I would look it up in RailsCast and figure out okay, authentication, boom. And and that's that's how I slowly learned uh, Ruby and Rails through that.
1: Well, and it, yeah, he had the screencast. He had the ASCII cast in case. Maybe you couldn't watch the video, but you just want to see the code snippets of. I love Ryan is.
0: Bates. No, I would say it for the whole uh, thing. Like I, the yeah. the this teaching style he has is just wonderful.
1: And I, I'm so glad that it's all still up and and hosting. I know, right?
0: And it's even free now.
1: Absolutely, and and most most all of it's still relevant today. And even I even find it valuable for. You know, they might have bits that would be unique to Rails three. So if you're wanting to find out something from the Rails okay. three days you could see just like the professional way of how to get something
0: that's done, interesting. Right? I guess it's like a snapshot in time. It
1: is it is because the fact that he is uh, decided to keep these things, these l- lovely screencasts up, it is now a snapshot in history, which obviously I geek out, you know, some people like playing games from different eras or consoles, but I also like snapshots of how code was done and different, even though it's been a f- just years. Yeah. You know, 30 years from now, I'm going to want to geek out on how Rails did this, that, you know,
0: so a hundred percent.
1: So if you don't mind, I'd, I'd, I'd love to kind of go on from, you know, you're in Ruby and Rails land and now, you know, you're working for Shopify, which most, most railsists or Rubyists, um, would know is you've been on rails since 0.5. It's still on rails. It's it's, you know, but it, it does a lot. More than the average Rails app, right? Like the demands on the application. You know, I'm I'm in an outfit with a few developers. You know, small, but we solve our problem. But you know, Shopify's done so so well, and it's it's expanding all the time. Publicly traded, and you get to be in there all day long. And I think any average Rails developer would be just fascinated to hear what you can share. Obviously, right. about the architecture of that Rails app. Is it a monolith? How is it put together? How do you handle having Bajillions of you know feature requests, or if there's bug fixes, or changing our you know your your approach, I'd just love to hear about the architecture if if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things going on in Shopify at Rails. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, you're completely right. The application has been in Rails since almost the beginning. Um, it's always humbling for me to go through like all commits and find stuff uh, added by Toby, our CEO, who used to be part of the Rails core core team. Yeah. And uh, staff who made it to Shopify before making it to Rails, uh, for example, when you, whenever you write a controller test, you I don't know if you do this anymore, but at least at some point, you used to write uh, the name of the verb. You would say get, and then passing a symbol, and then passing the controller params. Yep. Uh, I think that was added by Toby. And uh, wow. I think we saw that first in Shopify, and then it made it all the way to Rails because it just felt like the Rails way at that point just wasn't that great. and. Um, Yeah, it's always humbling to find sort of pieces of history like that. Uh, But yes, uh, going back to your point, uh, the application is still the large monolith that it always was. And uh, a huge percentage of... Well, Shopify right now, it's a huge company and we offer a lot of services. Stuff like, for example, um, stock photography. That's definitely not done in in Shopify core, the monolith. Like, uh, we call it core internally, and it's really the core of how we want to model commerce. all the stuff that's purely commerce related happens in core unless for some crazy reasons it's better for us if it doesn't happen in core for example uh uh credit card processing that's you know pci compliance and that sort of stuff we actually extracted that into a separate service but still most of the business logic related to commerce does happen in this large monolith and uh including for example stuff like uh, the only store channel whenever you browse like a shopify store it is being rendered by the Rails application. Um, and um, yeah, uh, the architecture is, uh, at least from the sort of uh, production engineering perspective is what I would call a sharded application. Okay. Uh, essentially, we don't have one large giant database. I think the way Basecamp does, but we have hundreds of them mm. and they all have the same schema. They all have the same tables. There's no master database anymore. It's just a bunch of I couldn't really tell you numbers but it's a lot of them <laughs> yeah and yeah. whenever we add more shouts we just add more shards essentially okay but uh yeah um when i joined the company in 2016 for its biggest part it was a, it was the same way your regular rail uh, rails application is this is actually super interesting because being such a big rails application there's like a lot of sort of mysticism around it, right? Like I remember yeah. uh, I already had four or five years of Rails experience by the time I joined the company. And uh, mentally I was very excited to actually go and get to see the source code because I I had a list of these mental do's and don'ts that any large scale application in my mind has to follow. For example, yeah. stuff like uh, callbacks in general, I just really dislike active record callbacks and, uh, and I've seen how they lead to sort of applications that are harder to evolve in the future. So I thought to myself, yes, definitely such a large Rails application. There's no way it has callbacks because there's no way any business would evolve through that. And uh, it's been a tremendously humbling experience for me to actually get to join uh, the company and work on this application on my day-to-day because all these myths that I have about what it takes for you to be production-ready for scale were debunked. Like, they were completely (laughs) debunked. Stuff like all of them, like, uh, logic in your controllers, logic in your models, uh, yeah. you know, these God service objects, uh, active record callbacks, we do all of them. We do, the application yeah. does all of them and, and it still kicks ass. Like, I think <laughs> there's some secret sauce, uh, like secret sauce to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, it's, that, it's really interesting.
1: It's <laughs> funny, right? Because there's, there's people who, you know, think about scaling all the time and they're like 1,000th the size of Shopify and you hear them talking about, all microservices, but you're leaning on the monolith, and you make the decision, this, this could be a good microservice candidate, and you make it there, you exactly. know, you have, you might have a callback, and it's doing its job, and it's not hurting anyone. And it's it's not getting in the way of anything, you use your callbacks, right? Like, right. So, so it sounds like you're, I don't know, would the term be holistic or pragmatic? You know, it's you write the code that you need and it's working. And, it, and like you say, it kicks ass. So. so
0: to me, it really boils down to pragmatism. I I, I think that's, um, I think that really defines the engineering philosophy we have in the company. And in many ways, I think it defines the engineering philosophy that Ruby promotes. Um, the, the company is founded by uh, Rails core committer. So like this guy definitely understands Ruby. He speaks Ruby and I think he lives his philosophy and we can see that in, in our day to day. With regards to callbacks, for example, a funny, a funny example that I have is that uh, we had so much business logic relying on callbacks that we had to create an abstraction for our background jobs. So you, you would give it a threshold And if it passes that threshold in terms of callbacks being sent, it would kill a background job because, for example, you could have an email notificator that is is sent after a new user is created, just to give you an example. So say that you have to create import users from a CSV file or something like that, maybe you don't want that email to be sent. So we have this tripwire in the background job. Uh, Of course, these are now anti-patterns, and we really don't want any any callbacks in our models, and we're actively working to deprecate them. But... um, you can really get away with with a lot of depth, uh, And I say that in a very good way, that makes me very proud. Like I'm very confident the company wouldn't be where it is right now without uh, the code that we shipped. Um, but uh, I guess one thing that I like about the company is that we don't just follow the, like not the rules, but what other people do just because, but we actually try to really understand it and boil it down to its core, to the core thing that really matters. And then sort of take what we like about it. So for example, you just brought up microservices, Uh, a common pattern that companies the size that we are, or of course much larger follow is to have these microservices, right? It it, it forces you into decoupling your business logic so things can evolve in parallel and it makes the coupling between different parts of your business much more visible. Uh, Of course, the problem is that Now you have to find a way to scale hundreds of apps, not just one, figure out how, you know, you add network boundaries, latency. If you have a network, it will eventually go down and the more you you use it, or the more you you make these network calls, the more likely for that is to happen. So we definitely don't want to ourselves. We don't want that to ourselves. So uh, something the company has been doing since uh, 2016 is uh, essentially split the application into small chunks while keeping it within the same monolith. And uh, they're doing this thing that we didn't invent. Uh, That's called uh, Domain Driven Design. There's many books about it. And uh, it's one of these large enterprise architecture sort of things, but I I feel like it fits us really, really well and we're taking the best out of it. So um, essentially we don't have your one controllers folder anymore. We don't have your one models folder anymore. Uh, If you imagine a Rails application, we took the app part with the app folder and we put it inside another folder so we have this folder in the root of the git repository called components and then each component is a different domain of commerce Oh, okay yeah. uh, so for example i work in the merchandising team so merchandising yeah. is everything that has to do with products my team owns the products table so if you make it to the root of Shopify, you'll go to components and then you'll find a folder called merchandising and inside merchandising, there's a YAML file that explains the team. It's just Slack handle names and different sort of things relevant to us. And inside that folder, you'll find the app folder. And uh, of course, then you'll find your models, but only the models that, uh, correspond to us.
1: So, and- so you'd, ha- so you'd have that same structure. Once you got into root merchandising, uh, and then app models, controllers.
0: Exactly. And did, then it's did, the exact same as any Rails app.
1: For breaking out into components, did that, Rails has a lot of, one of the most interesting parts of the Rails magic I've found, because um, if you write enough Ruby on its own, you notice the magic when you don't have right. it is exactly. auto-loading. Auto-loading, yes. right? Yeah. So, so I whenever I write my own Ruby stuff, I'm like, oh, I got to require here, require in that order. So breaking out into components or domains rather as well, um, yeah. Did that work well with with rails auto loading, or did that you know just thinking of challenges here or or did you have to find your own way to require because can you pass the paths in I don't know there's probably something rails that you can do,
0: yeah, I know it was actually very, very challenging for us and um so I'll. Uh, basic. B- by the way, like uh, disclaimer. Uh, everything I'm talking about here is everything I saw as a reflection of being a user of or oh, like uh, a maintainer of this application. But right. I was nowhere. I was nowhere near close to the team who actually got to do this. Like the company is okay. big enough that we actually have complete teams. So we have a team right now in charge of componentization, and it's still an ongoing thing. So we have right. stewards for ensuring that the application is component. So I, I'm just a user of third library, if you want. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Sure. But uh, the one I know for sure is the challenge of autoloading. It's really good that you bring it up because that was a huge challenge for us. And uh, I myself had to deal with through some viruses uh, because of various reasons with that part itself. And that I think was one of the very, very hard things for them to get done with regards to componentization, because although we want the files to live in different folders, uh, we're not necessarily namespacing them. So for example, right. the products active record model is still in merchandising models product.rb, but the order row, uh, the order object lives in, I don't know, uh, sales, models, order.rb, and they're not namespaced under any way. So um, yes, they did have have to hack the autoloader in Rails. Uh, I think there's this option where you essentially give it an array of folders and they had to manually scan all the folders inside this components file, and then put them into that array, which I think created lots of issues, essentially. It probably took a long time for the app to to boot, and I'm getting the feel that that's why we actually had to do the uh, auto-loading path caching gem that now comes with Rails. Uh, I don't know if you've seen BootSnap. BootSnap is a gem we had to do it, and I, I think we created it around this time. Probably took it away that issue, but I'm not hundred percent sure on that.
1: Gosh, so it sounds like um, just thinking along the, the the challenges of working with uh, a t- teams and applications aside, it's interesting how sometimes the structure of organization can be reflected in the code. So yeah. you talk about you have teams, you're like merchandising, and then it's reflected in the code, isn't it? So you go yeah. root merchandising. So, um, do you find that? Uh, even though there's challenges that that reflecting the structure of the organization in the code actually explicitly that way so you kind of have a home in a domain that you know really well and then you'll know who has the knowledge in the other domains or other you know subfolders um, is advantageous uh, to the organization as well
0: yeah so there's an organizational theory that says that I mean, I don't know this, I don't know the name, but it essentially says that the software that you write will be reflected by the people who write it. So people naturally tend to, you know, um, group themselves in the way, uh, code tends to reflect the way people are grouped themselves. So um, I think this has pros and cons. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a silver bullet, but uh, one thing that I like about this is that it makes the flaws much more visible. Like if if, I, that I'm part of the products table, for example, I have to deal with a lot of, I have a lot of active record associations, for example, pointing to the orders uh, object, which is in another component. It'll be much more obvious to me where I'm shipping debt because eventually in the future, it's gonna be much harder for us to evolve products and say that I want to completely refactor products. Now I'll have to go and refactor orders as well because they're so coupled to us. So uh, join lines in a much more clear way makes sort of the breaking of the mandaris much more visible, which I really, really like, like in the way I typically describe componentization is by essentially getting the best of both worlds with regards to Microservices. We we get to have the strict the, the the strict separation if we wanted to, but we can also just yeah. cheat and call direct you know very private objects living in another component without real issues. Like uh, it it essentially allows me to ship debt and become clear and become much more aware of what debt is. So then I can go and fix it into the future. It doesn't it never sort of prevents you from shipping value, which is what we ultimately care about. At the same time, we also don't have the network boundary, which can create lots of issues is it still one application that people have to maintain that. I mean, the production engineers have to maintain.
1: That's it. Right. So if, if my, if my work in my domain is separated by, you know, subfolder, but we're all hosted on the same, you know, server and I can call you directly as if you were in. We were all on the same app which you are right because exactly. you're getting the best of both exactly it's, and that's fast right like i am not sending a post request to talk oh, to yeah. you i am i am literally a part of your world but mentally as a developer we're off we're, we're in our segments but we can communicate as fast as anything
0: else right basically you don't even have to serialize what you're calling it's just ruby talking to ruby within the same virtual machine <laughs> Like Ruby VM, so yeah, no, I'm I'm very happy with this approach, and at the same time, sometimes things need to be extracted. For example, yeah. um, the the team who handles uh, the the recurrent payment for your Shopify subscription uh, actually figured out that it was best for them for that part of the code not to live inside Shopify. So they. Essentially, they worked through this, they created their component, and they worked on all the boundaries, and they did this thing that we call shitlist driven development, which is essentially making a huge to do of everything that you have to go and fix, and somehow yep. essentially deprecate the old way of doing things. So then yep. you stop the bleeding, and then you go one by one fixing things. And through that, they managed to extract uh, I think what they did is they actually forked the whole repo and then removed all the other components and then essentially removed pieces of Shopify until their app worked and everything was fine. Uh, I, I, I get the feel that that's what they did. I'm not fully sure, but you could definitely do that. So that's something I like about this component-driven design that you essentially draw strict boundaries within your application and then it gives you more flexibility into it, in a way. It makes you think more about, it makes you be much more conscious about the architecture that you're having.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing because obviously, you know, in, in my little world or some developers, you know, we, we'd never have the use case to, to have that consideration if you're on a three developer team or something. So it's really fascinating to see going to that scale, but I've got to say, uh, Jose, um, I know we've got a few minutes left and I could talk about this for about five hours, honestly, (laughs) but I'd love, if you don't mind, I'd love to pick your brain for just a few minutes. On the world, so we're so listeners. We're taking a big pivot here, by the way. This is this is, but I think it's something that, and you might agree with me that, that if 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 the listeners haven't really explored as Rubyists, that it'd be something they need to have a peek into. But the world of bots, bot development, whether it's a chat bot, anything, and I and love to just hear you talk about how you've got interested in bots. Uh, maybe some of what you've done with bots and and just kind of talk about just for a few minutes if that's all right
0: 100 percent. i'm actually very very passionate about bots i haven't really worked with them um recently but bobs are also I, I guess if we're thinking about milestones in like my programming career another way like another big milestone for me so uh my, my first bot i actually think it's uh i i like it a lot to me it was a very fun project so um I've been using Twitter for more than ten years now. I started in two thousand eight, and uh, I'm from in Chile. Uh, we speak Spanish, and the community in Spanish-speaking Twitter is very different than the one in English-speaking Twitter. Even nowadays, it's remained much more fun and healthy than the English one is. And I I don't really know why that's the case, but something I realized right from the beginning was that. Um, Everyone says hi to them on Twitter, at least in 2008, 2009, you would, you know, you would sign in your, like, remember, these were the messenger times, right? So like the MSN messenger. So the same way you would log log into messenger, people would log in and say, hey, I'm on Twitter now. And they would just go about their days, you know, tweeting how Twitter was originally meant to be used to just share essentially what you're doing on your day to day. And um One day I woke up and I started to just greet to everyone that was saying hello, uh, good morning on Twitter, and I saw myself sending five tweets in a row just saying good morning to people. And then Mm. somehow I got this synapse that this could be automated. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, I know that feeling. (laughs) Of course, right? So. being very young and, you know, excited about programming and all of this, I thought, okay, I need to talk to Twitter. So I created myself a bot that, well, I thought to myself, what's the friendliest character you could ever think of? And um, I don't know what comes to your mind, but at least to my mind at that time, it was Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. I always imagined him greeting Homer, <laughs> you know, being just very cheerful in general. Definitely. So I, I made this bot called uh, Don Saludador in Spanish, which roughly translates to like Mr. Greeter. And I put this Flanders avatar in it and it would essentially just search for tweets that say good morning and wish hey how's it going and I just let it running for a couple days you know like I thought okay let's just see what happens and um, I realized that people were answering to it like which was really (laughs) like mind-blowing to me we have this you have this you know Flanders basically talking to you out of nowhere from the internet because you have you didn't even have to follow the guy or anything And um, I started to create regular expressions that would match what people say and come up with like vague enough answers that would make it seem like he's human. Um, And after a while, I would see how people continue the thread, you know, and I would (coughs) sorry, I would go in and reinforce on the system um, the essentially with more answers for this. And I realized that after a while, people would just have, you know, like. Five, six, seven long tweet conversations with this bot, thinking that he seemed kind of a human. So eventually, the whole thing took off, and it got up to twenty thousand followers, which for the time was freaking huge. Yep. And um, that's really sort of what sparked my interest in bots. Uh, I wrote this on a PHP thingy running on on like a cron job on my you know Ubuntu machine. <laughs> yep. But wow. it, it was really impressive for me how you can sort of connect with people eventually. And like, it seemed to make their day really happy. Sometimes it would be a bit cheeky, you know, sometimes it would give me, a, it would give them a joke, but um, I, maybe it's just the engineer in me, I guess we're essentially modeling human emotions, but I, I really, really like that interaction that you get to have with the machine.
1: Right. I mean, cause if you, cause for example, I'm not a front end developer. I mean, I, I can, but like, I'm a, I think in the back end, right? And then right. all the front end, all this side, end, I know how my program should work. And then when you have a bot, you kind of strip it down to like the most basic in and out, right? right? It's not there's no buttons anymore, there's not even anything to click or forms to enter really. It's just one in and out. It's like, well, I know the interface, right? So you can you can make things for the to, token to any back end for yourself. I think you know there's a lot or for others. I mean, yes, there's the business case, but uh that's yeah that's fun but not as fun as as building bots on your own time right cuz it's not just twitter i mean how many platforms could you write a bot for these days dozens
0: yeah no there's like i guess that's the good thing about bots right that they're really just an api they're just human APIs, but ultimately it just helps you trans. It's a contract in which you translate one command from one platform to the other. Right. Right. Like could be Twitter. It could be my Amazon Echo. It could be a chat system like Messenger, Telegram, what have you.
1: Yep. And I mean, yeah. So I I guess I'd say if there's if there's developers interested in getting into it. I mean, if you've worked, you just you build your own interface right for what you want to come in and out Twilio mm-hmm. or whoever for SMS i will i will give you props for telegram bot which is which is your library which today you know i know you say you haven't built many bots recently but if i'd I'd love the readme on it i'll we'll put it in the show notes um but if you go in and you know uh, gem install and follow the readme you will be bot chatting with, uh, something in, in minutes and you can do it over telegram, which has the benefit of being a free service as well. Right. Cause with Twilio, you have to pay a little bit. Right. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I think I definitely, there's this, there's an evangelism here, isn't there for us web app people and backend people to, I cause okay. For example, 10, 20, 30 years from now, do you think bot development is still going to be relevant?
0: Absolutely. Like, um, yeah um absolutely so when uh when i was doing these php bots my my dream was that you could have like um do you remember yahoo pipes like i think yahoo pipes was this really amazing system it was like a gui where you do like flow charts but you're okay, essentially yeah. programming visually through that so you can yeah. tell yahoo you know what take this rss feed and then uh whenever Trump is mentioned or whoever, uh, make it go to this other feed. And you can, you're essentially programming. Uh, My dream was that to create an interface where you could create bots like that. So the same way I was writing regular expressions manually, I would love for like a visual system where people can go and do that. And um, we're kind of seeing those things now. Like uh, there's, I know that right now there's visual tools that allow you to create Twitter bots by dragging and dropping boxes and connecting them with like, you know, connectors. And even that's not that great, but, uh, yeah, I, so like ultimately I believe that in the future programming is going to be a skill, uh, as basic as math. Like right now you can kind of get away without math, but really like your life is so much better. Once you know it, I think programming is the same. I just don't think it's going to be showcased to us in the, in the way we know it. Like if you ask that programmer, I don't know, 40 years ago, they would have told you, yeah, in the future, everyone will speak assembly. I don't think <laughs> that in the future, everyone will speak assembly, nor C, nor Ruby, but I'll definitely think they'll be programming the same way people program right now through Excel, for example. Oh, well, sure. So I definitely see something like that for bots in the sense that it's kind of creating your own little robots, right? They help you on your day-to-day. Yeah. For example, for myself, uh, I'm really into sleeping. So like, you know, tracking your sleep cycles and knowing what's the best, the most optimal time to wake up, for example, because there is such thing. And uh, I would love for a bot that tells me, yeah, you know, well, I guess the iPhone does it now, but if the iPhone didn't do it, yeah uh, hey, now is actually a good time for you to go to bed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and I mean, how, how long you built yourself, right? Uh, sorry, yeah. uh, you built yourself. I don't know if you want to talk about your case, but that's to me is exactly sort of. To me, there's yeah. different stages of the evolution of this, right? Once is when programmers start doing it, but the case where I really think it gets interesting is when like non-programming people or programming people start using it for like non-geeky use cases. When for cases yeah. when they start to solve and help people's lives, right? Do you do you want to talk a bit more about your case? Yeah, because so I think it's I've... amazing
1: no thank you thank you well i've got two I've, i'll start with the boring one um so i have been every day i have been interacting with my own personal bots for maybe two years
0: i mean look and, at how crazy that is right like I, every day i've been interacting with my bots <laughs> and i
1: don't share them at the minute so like and so so you i mean so I'd, i imagine you have for years had some sort of like with a sleep bot. And it's just it's just something you have access to via whatever application. So the first one was it the first one? Anyway, the one that I use the most often, um, I'm my wife and I manage our personal finances uh, via SMS. And the reason we do SMS is because we don't need anything fancy, it just needs to be in and out. But I want to be able to do it without data. So if I'm in a place which does happen where I live, if I'm out in a, a bar, um, without data, I want to be able to log buying a round of beers, right? right? But because if I don't, then I'm going to be off track of where my money is, right? Right. So that's called, whenever I can't name something, I put Schwad in front of it. So, because my last name is I just do Schwad. So it's called Schwad Budget. If you Google it, you could probably <laughs> find amazing. a website. It's got a proper S, uh, GUI web sign-in because you, you sign in once a month. Build your budget, build little pots that you can spend out of and then spend from them via text. And it's the fact that I've used it every day for two years. I think it's at least for me, but I almost don't want to share it because I don't want to write features for other people. I just want it for me. Right. Um, So in the other one, and I I spoke about this a bit. So my then fiance now wife was having some really bad pain um, related to having a, a surgery coming up. And, uh, with, with a hip replacement and the surgeon had said, you know, it's not a wives' tale barometric pressure fluctuations can affect your pain. So keep your eye out for the weather forecast for that. Obviously geek tech nerdy Rubyist who to want to do something to help her or or, 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 or at least not even help her, but like get some power back with the situation. Right. Um, I wrote something that would hook into the weather underground API for our current location and, um, would ping her randomly five times a day. Laura in good faith would do her current pain on a scale of zero to 10, but good faith. So not just right. doing 10 all the time, but like she, her four would be like my 10, you know, she's, right. she's tough. And, um, yeah, no, out of that, we got enough of a body of data. In fact, last week I pulled in 10,000 random weather, uh, uh, bits from weather underground. And compared it with the data and and yeah she had a lot better correlation I'm not gonna say causation right so we've actually expanded that into a lot bigger thing where we're gonna take the entire weather profile and um, and also with telegram and telegram bot their live location so they could be traveling around and will know the local weather wherever they're at and if they haven't updated their location say no 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 update your location then take the pain number then marry it to the local complete weather profile and then while that data builds, um, we'll put a link in the show notes if anyone's interested, we'll get user agreements to protect your data and all that. But um, we'll, we'll be able to run it against a lot of different machine learning strategies to see which has the highest amount of accuracy with what inputs, right? So it's, it's like running a study, but like a Rubyist would do. It's like, we take all the data, every permutation, every machine learning strategy, run every night on a script, probably really inefficient, right? Like nested while statements to see different parameters, right? And just go nuts and see if they're with certain people, certain types of pain. If there's one that really is a strong causation, because obviously the dream goal would be if you found one use case or even one person where it was really coupled to a particular set of weather that you could say, Hey, you know, don't give them a pain forecast, but be like, just so you know, tomorrow the conditions look like you have a ninety-five percent chance to have a lot of pain or a four percent chance to have much pain, you know, to be able but that's all bots. There's it is a Rails app that I did. It is a Rails app, but I just have Telegram bot inside of it and then hook okay, because just use my current environment. Uh, and I, then I think that's just
0: there. really, really amazing. I <clears throat> I'm a huge fan of the intersection between technology and actually making people's lives better. And, by, and what way to make someone's life better than actually help them manage their expectation towards Spain, for example, like oh, that's as real as it gets, right? And yeah. you know what? Like, I think it's awesome that you use the gem and that you use Rails, but nobody cares. Like, I no. mean, it's uh, us, we geeks care. But ultimately, what really, really matters is that this is hopefully making your life, your wife's lives better. Yep, And Absolutely. that's the whole point of technology, right?
1: Yeah, if it helps one person, and absolutely. So that that kind of leads me to, I think, a good final point here. So I'm thinking, let's say somebody's listened to us today, and they've listened to what you've had to say, and they, they're they thinking, okay, I trust Jose. He seems pretty, you know, attuned to where development's going. I'm interested in bots now. Um, so we'll link in the show notes, Telegram bot. I know I could say I've seen things about a framework that tends to try to be Railsy, but it's its own framework for messaging called Stealth. We'll put that in the show notes. Mm. What other tooling, you mentioned one to me a while back, that Uh, Ruby for Lita, yeah. So is that a similar, so it's a tool, Ruby building bots. As well. So
0: yes and no. So uh, if you ask me for advice to people, for example, the first thing I would tell them is start thinking about this, like get yourself and build your own bot that would help you on your day to day, the same way yeah. you build your own to track your own finances, for example. By the way, I forgot to mention, there's actually a business right now who does that here in Canada. I don't know if you guys have it in the UK, uh, but it's some probably some Silicon Valley company that does exactly what you're saying. Sends me an SMS and if I can ask it, hey, I want to buy a new MacBook does it fit within my budget and the app will tell me hey well not really because you spent three dollars on pizza last week uh, <laughs> and stuff like that but nice. uh, i think the key component here is to just uh get yourself thinking in terms of the ui like you definitely want to be the user of this so then you start understanding how the ui would help you sort of succeed in this and um that's the best advice I can give to people. As long as you start thinking on this, you'll be more ready to in the future build simpler UIs essentially, because that's what I realize ends up being the optimization problem. You know, the same way you have uh, a desktop application, which is full-fledged and allows you to do all sorts of different things, uh, very complex things. The first iteration in which they moved desktop UIs to mobile was horrible. Like I'm talking the Windows Mobile, pound praise that you have to use the stylus. It was just horrible because they translated everything one to one. But then we have the next generation of like Apple with like just one click, one big button that you press and it does everything for you. To me, uh, bots are sort of an oversimplification of what the mobile UIs do. So the first instinct one gets is trying to translate the web form, which has hundreds of different inputs and outputs into a text message. And that obviously doesn't scale. So the earlier you get yourself to think about how the UI for this should be, you essentially start boiling down the problem much, much closer in a way. You get closer to the actual true meat of the problem. Right. So uh, we talked about gems. Uh, any gem that allows you to make a bot, I think would th- that'd be great. Uh, I know that there's Lita on Ruby, which is uh, like an actual framework, but I think that's much, I haven't used it myself, but I think it's closer to what like Hubot like bots are essentially like a terminal for your Slack. Uh, they're like one of command things, but the I don't think they necessarily enable this conversational nature that I'm a big fan of, mm. that I think is ultimately what will sort of make the big boom. Like, yes, it's nice that I can deploy my thousand servers from Slack, but even though it's the same interface, is the spirit, I feel it's kind of different.
1: Uh, do you want to let the listeners know where they can get a hold of you and talk to you about bots or anything on, on Twitter or elsewhere?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, these days I'm not that active on social media anymore. Twitter is becoming really weird these days, but mm-hmm. uh, you can still find me there. Uh, basically on almost all social networks, I am at E-L-J-O-J-O like in Spanish would say El Ho, Ho. Uh, I don't know if that's the best English pronunciation, but um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's my website as well, eljojo.net, but through there you can find me everywhere else.
1: Awesome, well, thank you very much, Jose, and uh, thank you all for tuning in until next time when Brittany resumes hosting the show. Thank you. Thank you.